right. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to this public debate on the power of climate activism and protest, which is hosted by the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. My name is Robert Faulkner. I'm the research director at the Grantham Institute, and I have the pleasure of chairing tonight's event. I guess we couldn't have picked a better date for this event, which we planned some time ago. Um, uh, after all, only last month, the global climate strikes produced probably the biggest turnout in world history. Six to seven million people went out on strikes in late September uh, in an estimated 150 countries. And only a few days ago, Extinction Rebellion started two weeks of action here in London and in many other cities in the world trying to shut down key sites in Westminster and beyond. I hear over 500 arrests have already been made. So I think there can be no doubt that this new wave of activism is different, is of a different quality, and that it is focusing everyone's minds on the urgent task of dealing with the climate threats that we're facing. Parliament in the UK and in many other parts of the world uh, has declared a climate emergency. But what can street protests, what can climate activism really achieve? How can we translate the energy and the anger that people feel about this topic into real action that produces decarbonisation, a low-carbon economy in the future, in Parliament, in government, but also in business? So to debate these issues, we've assembled a star team of speakers, and I'd like to just introduce them briefly, one by one. They have a long engagement in the climate debate, and we're very grateful they're here. Turns out we have a fourth panelist in the form of a tree, uh, but you'll hear more about that in a moment. Put it here as a symbol. I'm going to start. I'm going to start in the order in which our panelists will introduce themselves. Fahana, Fahana Yamin, is an environmental lawyer who, during a long-standing and distinguished career, has played an important role behind the scenes, mostly in shaping international climate policy. She's been involved in the climate negotiations at the UN level for, I think, a good 30 years now. Uh, Fahana, you were lead author on many of the reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And perhaps her biggest achievement was, back in 2015 in the Paris negotiations, when it was largely due to Fahana's lobbying behind the scenes that we got the long-term target of net zero into the treaty, which is a, a fine achievement indeed. But last year, Fahana decided that this is not enough, and she became an activist with Extinction Rebellion. In April, earlier this year, she joined the protests of Extinction Rebellion. She glued her hands to the pavements uh, outside the headquarters of Shell, and I checked today with a she had done the same again in advance of this debate, but luckily um, uh, this hasn't happened yet. She was, of course, arrested for that protest. She says of her involvement in climate activism that, quote, it is producing the sort of positive rapid result I could only dream of in my years of committee sitting and draft wrangling. Our second speaker is Ed Miliband. Ed, who is an alumnus of the LSE, has been a member of parliament for Doncaster North since 2005. I think it's fair to say he's played a key role in shaping British climate policy, both in terms of its leadership position in Europe but also internationally. 
From 2008 to 2010, he was in Gordon Brown's government serving as the first State of, uh, Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. During this time, Ed represented the UK in the Copenhagen Conference, and he also played a key role in driving up British ambition in terms of its decarbonisation target. In 2010, Ed became the leader of the Labour Party, a position he held for five years. During the general election of 2015, which Labour, as we all know, lost to the Tories, David Cameron warned the nation that a Miliband-led government would bring chaos to the country. Um, I'm, I suspect we're all pleased that we were spared chaos in British politics. Um, but of course, if in these times of Brexit chaos and climate emergency, you need reasons to be cheerful, I would highly recommend you also listen to Ed's podcast series of the same name, Reasons to be Cheerful, that he's been producing with the journalist Jeff Lloyd for a good two years now, which are a fantastic way to do politics, but in a perhaps more cheerful Thank you. way. Our third speaker is James Murray, who brings a different perspective into this panel, namely business and how companies react to climate protests. Back in 2007, James founded the website Business Green, and it has since become the go-to site for anyone who wants to know about the green economy, about low-carbon technologies and how companies deal with climate threats. James is still closely involved in running it. He's the editor-in-chief, but he's also become an influential commentator on how carbon policy works more widely. I read a recent interview that you gave um, in which you made two very interesting statements. One was to say that you are quietly pessimistic, and that you think the two degrees target may be out of reach. But given how hard you work in this area, I suspect this is a case of what might be called pessimism with a purpose. Anyway, we need to quiz you on where you stand on that too. But the second statement puzzled me even more. James said here, quote, Twitter is a huge drain on daily productivity, end quote. <laughs> says the man with 80,000 tweets and 30,000 followers to his name. Um, perhaps what he meant was, it's a drain on my productivity because I read everything he writes on Twitter, and I'm very grateful for it. Oh, thank you very much. So, so here's the panel. Um, I'll, I'll leave Ed to introduce the tree in a moment. The, the three panelists will make short statements. I will then ask one or two questions to them to engage them in the brief discussion, and we will then reserve as much time as we can for the audience to come in. I want everyone, not everyone, apologies in advance, to get a chance to ask questions. We will make this as interactive as possible. But before we get started, could you please join me in welcoming the panel tonight? Thank you. Okay, Fahana, the floor is yours. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks very much uh, for being here tonight. I'm really delighted to uh, address you from um, here. I'm quite used to lecture halls, actually, so actually becoming an activist is the slightly unusual thing, and talking about my activism is, is also um, a, new, a, a new thing for me. I've, I've become used to it because I joined Extinction Rebellion, actually, almost a year ago. Um, and was very involved in the run-up to the April uh, rebellion, which uh, kick-started, I think for most people, uh, th their interest in seeing how this was going to affect politics. Um, my personal journey into activism was very much uh, born from a deep sense of grief 
and a deep sense of personal failure uh, stemming from the 30 years almost of negotiations in the climate change uh, uh, and through the other intergovernmental processes that are related to that. Um, as, as, as someone who's been involved in the 1992 Convention on Climate Change, the 1997 Kyoto Protocol, and then the 90, uh, 2015 uh, Paris Agreement, um, I felt like my life was a five-year cycle in which we would manage uh, what we technically call a sort of review of commitments, an analysis that uh, happens more or less every five years in the, under all of those three different treaties. And each year we would urge ambition and an increase in collective effort and we would negotiate another lot of treaties and another lot of rules. And by the end of 2016, and I'll be very you know, uh, honest, uh, with the election of President Trump and the whole, a whole host of uh, fossil fuel interests all lined up against us in terms of the next cycle of ambition, which is right now uh, in 2020. Um, I felt like uh, it wasn't possible for me to pretend anymore to my clients, the small island states, the least developed countries, the many allies such as indigenous people that they work very closely with, to pretend that we were going to get there just by negotiations alone. So um, that was the backdrop to where I felt uh, in my own sort of legal and personal journey. Um, I also did a lot of reading around uh, that period and withdrew a little bit. And it seemed, you know, accurate to say really big transformational systemic changes, really uh, fundamental uh, uh, instances of, of injustice. Uh, are actually not delivered through lawmaking, but through movements. And law comes really at the end. Law is one tactic, one strategy. And in, 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 in many cases, law breaking, non-violent civil disobedience is an essential component and has been. So the struggles for, uh, for women's em emancipation, the struggles against apartheid, the struggles uh, against uh, colonial rule, um, you know, just to name a few examples, are, are, are bound by the, 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 the method and the resort to uh, non-violent civil disobedience. Obviously, you all know Gandhi. And today I was at the Royal Courts of Justice launching an initiative called Lawyers for XR and a Lawyers Declares Emergency Motion. So there's a, a strong pedigree of legal activism, whether it's through the judiciary or through lawyers, deciding that in certain cases it's not enough that our legal systems are so off their ethical and moral bearings that they need correction. And I believe that that's the case right now. And the two biggest failures of our generation, what we're sitting with right now, and the grief that is coming from that realization is basically our social, economic, and political systems are killing nature. Here it is. We are destroying life on Earth. We call it biodiversity. You can, you can dress it up in more technical words, but we are actually destroying the conditions for life on Earth. We are killing wildlife. We are decimating uh, every kind of ecosystem from oceans to, to, to forests. Um, and that is happening on our watch, and it's happened uh, in, in uh, a sort of a, a cross-party consensus has reigned over that, actually. It's, it's happened for many generations. No matter which party was in power, it was pursuing essentially economic growth uh, uh, at the expense of, of the planet and at the expense of future generations. So that's the second big deficit in our social, political, economic systems. We have not found a way to correct for the short term, for the incumbency, for vested interests, 
who are uh, uh, now very, very powerful. Um, another element in my personal uh, journey for activism was reading a report that came out in March of uh, 2019, a few months ago, just, just a week or so before, the, before I decided to glue myself to the headquarters of Shell. And the report is from Influence Map, a new kind of think tank research unit. And in it, it reports that the top five fossil fuel companies have spent a billion dollars since the Paris Agreement on essentially greenwashing. And uh, uh, essentially, between them, they, they invest about 3% of their $155 billion in investments on renewables, yet you're given the impression that it's probably the reverse, right? It's not. So the vast majority of expenditures are still going on digging this stuff up out of the ground and it's preventing uh, the kind of greener kind of uh, energy that, uh, that is completely possible. So that was my immediate sort of trigger, enough is enough. And I feel that the obfuscation and unaccountability of in, in this case, these particular companies will get recognized and will be corrected through our legal systems. I don't know when, I don't know where, but dozens of litigation cases are now being launched, dozens of legal inquiries are being launched. But the resort to nonviolent civil disobedience is sometimes that process can be very slow. Uh, and uh, these companies have deep pockets and can uh, 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 use those to, to tie up the legal systems and to deny justice. It's not always the case that our legal systems deliver justice to those who don't have deep pockets, which is very sad to acknowledge. So that's my journey into uh, activism. I think, in a nutshell, it works. Um, if it had not been for those... Uh, uh, students going on strike from uh, uh, you know October actually onwards Greta's strikes really started to take off all around the world and if it had not been for uh, hundreds of people uh, and over a thousand people being arrested in the last period I don't think we would be in the position now where we actually have the net zero by 2050 target actually enshrined in law you know when I talked to MPs back in March and April, they were, oh yeah, we may get that done, we may not get that done, there was so little interest. And I think what uh, uh, the activism has done is to open up conversations, and I know that sounds very vague, but actually, you know, even I didn't used to talk in the playground or to my friends or about work and what needed changing, so I think it, what it's done is enabled people to have courageous conversations about what their own footprint looks like and about what it means to be a human being right now. And for me, um, my journey into activism was very much about aligning who I was, both as a lawyer, as a professional, as a mother, and as a human being, and sort of putting them all in the same box. And I think that that's what I would like to end on, is actually we can't separate off any longer being students and then you know, doing activism in our part-time a bit later or um, you know, going away and consuming uh, as normal uh, or doing business as normal in our normal professions and then see, leave it to someone else to figure out how to save the planet. This is something that we're all involved in and breaking down some of the silos from our professional and personal and political lives is uh, something that we all need to step up to. So thank you very much for allowing me to share a little bit of that and look forward to Wonderful. the Wonderful. Thank you, Farhana. Ed, how does this look from the perspective of the professional politician? You get a lot of protests in front of Parliament, but you, politicians don't always listen to every single demonstration, every single campaign that's going on. What works? Yeah, well, mind? look, um, 
Uh, first, I should introduce my friend, the tree. Uh, I just came from the um, Extinction Rebellion uh, protest, and they've uh, given a tree to every uh, member of parliament uh, as a, uh, I mean, it makes it a demonstration with a difference. Uh, as a symbol, I've never been given a tree before uh, uh, by, by a protest uh, as a symbol of, uh, well, a symbol of, you know, what we're trying to protect and also what part of the solution is. So, and um, I was asking them how many people had actually got their trees, and apparently most MPs seem to have got their trees, and Tory MPs have been photographed with trees, you know, MPs of all parties have been photographed with the trees. Um, so, which is good. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, the question is, can climate activism save the planet? My answer is yes, um, partly because I'm a cheerful person, uh, and we, God knows we need that at the moment, um, and partly because I think it can. Um, I think Farhana, I mean, let me pick up from where Farhana left off. I think why has Extinction Rebellion and the pupil climate strikes worked? It's essentially because they've shifted the Overton window. They've shifted the sense of what is possible uh, and what we can argue for. You know, the, when the first demands came for the climate emergency, the uh, net zero by 2025 and the citizens assembly people were like yeah kind of that's uh, yeah, that's kind of not yeah, that's not going to happen that's never going to happen and i think and, and at that point as Vahana implied the net zero by 2050 was the radical position mm. now net zero by 2050 is the conservative position i mean uh, labor just passed its conference net zero by 2030 so uh, and and you know that has moved the debate and that is a, that, honestly, I'm not just saying this, that is a fantastic success. And I think it's not only sort of left politics a bit in its wake or pulled politics along with it, but, you know, I think the, the, the green movement as a whole is brilliant, but I think it's quite interesting that Extinction Rebellion didn't come out of a particular green NGO. It just came out of a, a group of, of people who weren't necessarily connected to any uh, NGO and who were sort of, in a way, outside the system. Um, I've got three sort of questions I want to just sort of answer about it. <laughs> Um, one, can it be sustained? Two, can politics respond? And then something about the uh, ballot box. Um, can it be sustained, I think, is a big question. Because, you know, Occupy, I don't think it was as successful in changing the conversation, but it definitely provoked reaction, but then it didn't quite know where to go. My sense is that Extinction Rebellion is a significantly better thought through and organised thing. I was just talking to some of the people protesting today and what was really interesting, I kept asking them what's the best thing about XR and they said well, a woman from, I can't remember where she was from, but she certainly didn't seem like, a, what was it, uncooperative crusty, uh, uh, to use the phrase of the Prime Minister. She said the best thing about it is they're nice to the police. And I was like, go on. And she said, well, I, I, you know, I'm not into demonstrations generally. They throw things at the police and so on. The best thing about them is they're nice to the police, they're cooperative, they're not, you know, they, they apologise for disrupting uh, people's lives, but they explain why uh, they're doing it. So I think it's incredibly well thought through. I think it's incredibly important that it's sustained. Uh, second, and, and, and by the way, and sustained and deepened. I was in my constituency on Tuesday talking to uh, as Doncaster North, as you said, uh, talking to young people there. And, you know, I mean, they, they were really interested in, in XR and the pupil climate strikes. And not all of them had been on them. I think the school didn't, hadn't so much kind of allowed them to go on them. Uh, I kind of, uh, we had an interesting debate about that. Um, but, but I think there was a sense, so, so I think it's sustained and deepened. <laughs> Secondly, can politics respond? Politics has got to respond um, and has got to respond with urgency and 
politics as a whole has not nearly done enough. I'm writing something at the moment. You know, we, we, we're proud of the consensus we have in this country that climate change is a problem that it needs to be tackled, or climate, the climate emergency is a problem, it needs to be tackled. Consensus is not enough anymore. We shouldn't break the consensus just for the sake of it, but we've got to have an arms race when it comes to urgency and speed and scale. Just saying, oh, isn't it great, we've got a consensus, is, not, is no longer <coughs> enough given the scale of the problem. Personally, where would I put my vision? Uh, I'd say it's not just about the nightmare, avoiding the nightmare, it's about the dream, about creating better lives for people. Somebody from XR said to me, what you're saying, because I was talking about my constituency, is that XR and the climate movement's got to become a working class movement. And I said, yeah. And we're a long way from that. Now, how does that happen? It's about jobs for my constituents. It's about better air quality. It's about better lives for people. And I think in a way, if I, if I can be sort of self-critical, you know, it, it's not that truth-telling is important. It is important. And it's not that avoiding disaster is important. It is important. But we've got to, we can't say economic justice has to wait for climate justice. Both have to go together. And I think that is really, really important as this movement goes forward. Because unless we say to people, this is about better lives for you, uh, you know, we've got to have the confidence in that. That's not about saying there won't be some sacrifice and all that, but it is about better lives. And then third, my third question is, can, uh, what about the ballot box? And as you may have heard, there may be an election uh, quite soon. Uh, p personally, I think this is a far more important issue than Brexit. Um, I mean, this is, this is, you know, in 10 years' time, people will be, uh, don't get me wrong, I don't think, you know, I'm not saying Brexit doesn't matter, but people will be asking, what were you doing? And the government we elect for the next five years will be in power for half of the decade that the IPCC says we have left to turn around the problem. And so partly I think one of the jobs of all of you, of the people interested in this, is to get organised for this election. Uh, and, to, and to put pressure on... You know, I noticed that uh, some of the climate strikers were inspired by the Parkland, what happened at the Parkland shooting and the gun uh, and the young people uh, of Parkland who then did this incredible campaign but if we're honest guns weren't a massive issue at the 2018 midterms in the US and, and you know, we all have a responsibility and obviously it starts with politicians but it's about the movement as well it's got to be an issue at the election every candidate, every party should be asked you, do you get the urgency are you going to be consistent and not just say we're going to build a third runway at Heathrow by the way and then have a few green policies you know, are, you going to be, are you going to be consistent uh, about, about this a and what's your vision uh, on, on climate. So, so I think it's really, it, I think it's, I feel more optimistic about this than I do in general. No, I feel more optimistic, <laughs> uh, I feel more optimistic about this issue in a way despite the fact that things, you know, the, the, the science is so, is so grim because of this activism. This is a real wave of activism, a really exciting wave of, act, of activism, but it's got to be sustained, politics has got to respond, and it's got to be, an we, we owe it to ourselves to make it an election issue. It's got to be an election issue. This cannot be an also-ran. In the 2015 general election, I bear some responsibility for this, we all signed a pledge, me, Cameron and Clegg, saying we're all going to be green in the following ways. There wasn't one question in the debates of 2015, the TV debates, about climate change, about the climate emergency. And, and we cannot have that happen again. Uh, and, 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 you know, politics has got to respond, and, and I hope voters will respond too. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, James. The, James, the CEO of Shell recently said he has sympathies with the protesters.
perhaps he just wanted Fahana to disappear, right, uh, from, from the headquarters. But how deep does this go in the business community? You know about that. Um, it goes very deep. I mean, it really it is. It's, it's one of the big transformational trends that I think the vast majority of um, responsible ambitious businesses are now fully engaged with. Business Green's been going 10 years. We, over that entire time frame, you've seen the constituency of businesses that take this agenda seriously grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and by seriously, I mean multi-billion dollar, multi-trillion dollar investments to deliver the infrastructure and the technologies that we need to deliver on the demands that activists and the voters are making. So the idea that it is not a concern, and I'll come back to Shell actually, I will talk specifically about Shell and oil industry, but the idea it's not a concern for them is, is simply not the case. They are deeply engaged with it. The one thing I would say though, I mean I'm I've, I've sort of on this panel as the representative of businesses, and um, it's kind of that thing of not, not all businesses. We have this weird thing where we talk of about a business community, and we say the business community is some kind of coherent heterogeneous whole. It's like saying the political community is, is, and is basically a heterogeneous whole and Ed and Jacob Rees-Mogg agree on all things. <laughs> Which is, you know, is categorically not the case, obviously. But then with businesses we just go, oh, they all fundamentally believe in the same policy positions, the same impulses. It's nonsense. They don't at all. There is a huge, vast array of different opinion on climate, as, on, on a wide range of issues, but on climate in particular, of businesses that desperately want more legislation, desperately want carbon taxes, desperately want more activism pushing them to do further and of course there are those businesses that would stick cling to what most people would regard as the character of businesses of wanting this all to go away so they can pollute more and make more money in the short term so you have that spectrum of opinion and i you know i'm if i'm representing any businesses it is from the progressive form of businesses that do want to change things whilst being aware that there is that other pool as well so yeah no one speaks for all businesses. And whenever anyone says, I used to hate this, I mean, because, I mean, Labour used to get this of being anti-business. It's like, what? There's no anti-business policy. Every policy creates winners and losers for certain businesses in, in certain areas. And most businesses will respond to a stable policy and legislative environment if it's there. Um, so it, it's a really sort of inane way of tarring them all with one brush. Um, so to then move on to the question of whether the activists have had an impact, taking that into account, in some cases... They've had a huge impact, either a positive impact where people have said, go on, brilliant, we support that, we want to see more movement, we, want, we can see the opportunities that creates. Some who have looked at it from a risk perspective have gone, hell, we're losing our social licence to operate and we need to respond to that. And, of course, there have been others who have ignored it completely and will hope it goes away. So there is that breadth of uh, response to the protests that we've seen. Um, I'd argue they are concerned about XR. They're really terrified of the school strikes because that's your market. You know, that's your market, that's your employees, that's your stakeholders, they're your voters in the next five, ten years, and you just see all the opinion polling shifting and shifting and shifting. So the carbon-intensive companies are genuinely concerned about their social licence to operate, their legal liabilities, etc., etc. And all businesses are looking at how market demands and market models are going to have to shift to meet the demands of this new constituency that is emerging very, very fast. Um, so it's had this huge impact, and one of, one of the ways, and I think I was on a panel with Fahana a few months back, and I think one of the ways we were talking about how, why it's had such an impact now is because it, it, it's come at the perfect time in that it's playing into some other trends that are making this green business movement accelerate. So there's sort of four things. There's, you've got the protesters and the public 
demanding it and seeing it as an issue of much greater salience. That's there. That wouldn't work if you didn't now have the technology and the economic analysis that shows that you can do deep decarbonisation. It's technically feasible. It's achievable. It's affordable. You might have to tweak your returns on investment a little bit and shift your economic models, but it can be done. And when this movement tried to protest around 2009 in the build-up to the Copenhagen summit, didn't get half as much traction. And the main reason was because the politicians and the businesses didn't really believe it could be done in a way that wasn't going to damage quality of life, wasn't going to make them unelectable, um, wasn't going to get huge kickback from people who were saying, I'm not going to pay 20 30% more on my energy bills. <laughs> now you can say, we can decarbonise our energy system in a way that's not going to cost you more uh, and potentially could cost you a lot less. We're going to give you that whole vision of dream rather than nightmare is, is visible and people have confidence in it. The second thing um, is that throughout that 10 years also, the policy environment has moved and we've got a much better understanding of what policies work. So the really wonky stuff of like, we know that well-priced carbon taxes are starting to work. We know that standards, I mean, it's really boring, but just like product standards, the biggest reduction in carbon emissions in this country is uh, basically boiler standards in the last 10 years. They've transformed the amount of energy we use in our homes. No one would know, would they? Who wants to talk about boilers? But that's been a huge, you know, boring stuff like standards has had a huge, huge impact. That's what's driven a lot of the electric car innovation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you kind of got that, we kind of know what works. We've got this sort of smorgasbord of policies from around the world that we can now pick on and go, do you know what, that'll work, that won't cause too much damage. We know how to compensate that losing party and benefit that party. So we're in a more sophisticated place. And the last one of these sort of four pillars that I think are really driving this is... Um, is, the, sca is the, the scary one of just the climate impacts are now moving so fast, they're outrunning the sort of shifting baseline syndrome that means people sort of normalise what they see. It's so fucking hot. Do you know what I mean? It's just so hot. You go out there and you visibly experience, viscerally experience, these climate impacts that we've been talking about for decades. That wasn't the case 10, 15 years ago. I mean, it, it's been raining recently. It's tropical rain in Northern Europe. And I think a lot of the sort of support that we're getting for XR from people who would normally just go, not touching that with a barge pole, I think people on some quite deep level accept that something's very, very wrong because you can see it and feel it and experience it. And I think it just really does. So we can't underestimate that impact in driving thought. Um, so, and just very quickly, mindful of time, the, the, the sort of question that was put to me was, is it, is it greenwash from businesses? And again, going back to that, not all businesses are the same. In some cases, yes. In some cases, it's intentional greenwash, and there is a horrible lobbying community that does everything they can to stop this. In some cases, it's sort of well-meaning greenwash, where a company hasn't really thought it through, and they think getting rid of plastic straws is enough, and they'll do what they can. And, but, you know, it's not, they, don't really, they don't mean to be misleading people. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's not. It's, you're seeing, I mean, the automotive industry spent many, many years slowing down progress and has a lot of responsibility for not being further ahead. The flip side of that is they are now investing billions and billions of dollars, eradicating their margins. Their investors are incredibly pissed off about this, or some of their short-sighted investors are, to develop the electric vehicles, electric fleets, mobility solutions that we will need to decarbonise. So for a lot of them, for some of them, it's not greenwash at all. It is a big existential bet that they're making um, that things are going to shift and they want to seize the opportunities from that shift. And which brings me to my, my final point is 
unfortunately, some of that will end up looking like greenwash because it's so difficult, and this is what's underplayed. I mean, there's three things. I mean, David Wallace-Wells said that, you know, climate change is, is worse than you think. The green industrial transition is bigger than you think and a, more exciting than you think, and it is also harder than you think. And it is going to be unbelievably difficult. You have to change virtually everything about the infrastructure and economic systems in which we live. And the market systems are basically stacked against making quick industrial transitions. And there's a couple of reasons for that, one of which is power in a, in a democratic system and a, a capitalist system. Power is actually really diffuse. There's a wonderful story about in Tim Shipman's book where about Brexit, where an aide is sort of walking around number 10, looking, opening all the doors where, where he thinks the power lies, and he concludes it doesn't, it's not there. You know, because it is, it's, it's, on, it's in Parliament, it's in government, it's in boardrooms, it's in the courts, it's on the streets, and it's really, really diffuse. And that's one of the strengths of capitalism and a, a free democracy, because it makes it quite resilient and flexible and adaptable. But then when you have to make a really big shift quickly, it's one of the big weaknesses because no one can quite work out which lever to pull to get this stuff done. And so to come round to the point you started with, with the boss of Shell, I was at a, we've, we've done, a full disclosure, we've done a bit of work with Shell. We've, kind of, we've worked with them in the past on various things. And I was at a, an event where Ben Van Burden, the CEO of Shell, was saying, I don't think he said at that point that he has sympathy for it, but he was saying that they support net zero and they want it to happen. And he, was ex- and he was pushed really hard. Allegra Stratton from ITM was the chair, and she pushed him really hard of like, well, why aren't you going faster? Why aren't you investing, you know, you're investing three billion in, or two billion in clean technologies. Why is it not five? Why is it not 10? And he said, well, and she said, what would happen if you did that? And he said, well, I'd be fired. He said, my investors would get rid of me, and they would bring in somebody who would say, you've tried this electric vehicle stuff. By the way, they, they are now the largest electric vehicle network operator in Europe. So they're also a terrible oil company in some respects, but they are, they are starting to hedge their position. And the investors would say, stop doing that, get back to your knitting, be an oil and gas company, and he'd have that short-term pressure. So I'm not saying anyone should feel particularly sorry for the CEO of an oil company, but that's a real concern. And then there was another example today. BP have sold off one of their oil assets up in yeah. Alaska. It's just been bought by another company and another company that will have almost certainly less concern about methane emissions and less public pressure than BP has. It's still going to get developed. So Shell's argument and a lot of the oil majors' arguments are, some of whom I think are terrible and are doing this to delay, others I think possibly are trying to move things forward, is you've got to give us... The pension funds have got to start pressuring us. The politicians have got to start pressuring us. The legislation's got to be there. Because if we move and our competitors don't, we go out of business, investors will sack the management team, and you're in exactly the same situation that you are. So it's this whole systemic shift that's got to happen, this whole industrial revolution that has to play out inside 30 years. Um, And that's hugely exciting. I get told off of being too pessimistic. I've spoken to people who have said this is the most exciting time to be alive in the history of humanity. There you have it. (laughs) Now... Get your questions ready. I'll, I'll open the floor in a moment, but I, I want to put one or two questions to the panel and allow you also to respond to each other's opening statements. You just mentioned the next 30 years. That's when it's going to happen, or that's when it has to happen, that yeah. transition. But we also know that the protesters are not that patient. 
they're demanding, uh, XR demanding a 2025 decarbonisation target for this country. That seems very tough. That seems very short-term. So can you tell me a bit more about, all three of you, what it means to declare an emergency, to call for rapid action, and then what? Parliament has declared an emergency. Business leaders are moving in the right direction. But what does it really mean to respond to that emergency? What follows next? First question. And the second question is, what happens when we pass that target 2025 and we haven't achieved it? Will people still come out? I mean, they will come out when it starts hurting more and more. But what happens to the, sort of the power of mobilization when perhaps we put unrealistic target up front? Well, um, I'll go first. So, so yeah, I was, you know, net zero by 2050, it's almost there in the Paris Agreement. It's what we were supposed to have been doing, in fact, you know, for, for a long time. Um, but why 2025? I think it's because it focuses on the immediate five-year period ahead of us, frankly. And uh, a 10-year decarbonisation on a socially just basis is, is feasible. We know it can happen. Um, so if you don't do anything in the first five years, you're not going to get it done in the second half, right? It immediately puts your dilemma right there. So stop talking about you know, net zero by 2050, because if you're not taking seriously this five years and the next five years and the next five years, and that's the case for the UK, which is why there's such hostility to the UK going around saying that we're a climate leader right now because, you know, they've got this net zero by 2050 target, but the next, uh, the fourth and the fifth carbon budget of the UK is, is not being met. Mm. So, so even in our own terms, we're not meeting that. So, so in terms of what happens if we go past that date, I think in a true emergency situation, you co-create a solution and you decide to walk the walk together there is no blueprint out there that is saying this is exactly how it's going to be done and this is why Extinction Rebellion and many movements are saying re-engage with citizens in the form of citizens' assemblies, for example, co-create those solutions, decide what the public's appetite for risk and change really is. And you can't look into a model and do that. So I've done a lot of work with economists over my life, and, and, and there, is no, there is no magic thing inside a, an economic model that tells you that answer. You have to go and engage with people, and you have to ask them. And I think that behavior change and the rate of technological change are two things which are very difficult in economic models to, to control and predict, and they're ultimately essentially about about political will and choice, and that's where we need to decide we're going to, to set this goal, we're going to reset the entire system, we're not going to mess around now with a, a policy here and a CCS pilot over there and you know, a carbon tax that may or may not work, we're going to go full throttle, and that's what you do as a society, you decide, it's all hands on deck, we're going to do this, whether it's, uh, we have different political views, we may argue about tactics and strategies, you know, uh, but the essential direction of travel is one of exploration, co-creation, and willingness to try things out. And I think that's the mindset that we need to be in and not 
have the mindset of failure from the beginning or saying we can't do this unless you know yet another eminent you know scientific panel which will take five more years tells you that it's possible and by the way they've all said that it's possible uh, in a slightly longer time frame which is 10 to 15 years and they they said that actually a few years ago so the, the issue is when we start not really the end date and um, but it's good to have an end date to keep people a bit, bit, bit more accountable I actually tend to agree with that. In um, 1939, the US military had 3,000 aircraft. By the end of the war, they had 300,000 aircraft. In 1962, John Kennedy said, I want to put a man on the moon within a decade. By 1969, they had put a man on the moon. I think in the end, this is actually about political will and imagination as well as technology. And I think, I think the reason why these near-term dates are important, and you can argue about what the near-term date should be and what the precise target should be, is that 30 years is just like, it's just too manana, isn't it, really? I mean, it's basically like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. We, we've, got a long time to, we've got a long time to worry about it. And I don't, and I think it's the sort of wrong mindset. And, and, and that's not just sort of, um, kind of hope. If you think about where we are now, a third of our electricity comes from wind power and solar power. Nobody thought that was possible a decade ago. I mean, people would have laughed at you if you said that was gonna happen. People did laugh and they said, our target, which we exceeded uh, for 2020, which I think was 15% of our energy, was ridiculous. Why did we sign up to that ridiculous renewables target? Uh, it's no, no way is it gonna be achieved. And we've achieved much more than we uh, expected. And you know, in a way, in this debate, we talk about negative feedback loops, and goodness knows the negative feedback loops are quite scary, you know, with the Arctic and all of that. But we should also think about the positive feedback loops that actually, you know, what's happened in relation to offshore wind, onshore wind, and solar is fascinating because, you know, it was government investment at the beginning. And it's, it's basically in most of the world, James will tell, correct me when I go wrong here, but I think in most of the world, within a couple of years, it will be the economically rational choice to go, to, to go for that. So if you actually really put national will behind it, you could, you could I, think, I think you could go a lot faster than it than looks like. Just one final thing. What does an emergency look like? It doesn't look like it passing an emergency and then not doing anything for five months. Uh, I mean, okay, we passed the net zero target, but the government's not actually done anything since the emergency was passed. Fahana and I have talked about this. What, what, what would we do? I think we, we agree on this. You, know, you should have an emergency program to start to change the way people's homes are heated, start insulating people's homes, creates jobs for people. It's, it's, it's like this, we've, this idea of a carbon army, a carbon army of people, street by street, house by house, to start changing the way our homes are configured. Now, it's going to take time to do it, but, but let's sort of get on with it. And I think that's why the near term matters. Mm. Yeah. Um, I want to be pessimistic. I, I, I have an issue with the 2025 target, and we've, we've discussed this before. And I, I have been in that wonderful position on Twitter where you should never go um, of, of being attacked by XR activists and then also being attacked by climate skeptics for, on, from both sides. Um, the thing, and I, and I absolutely agree on every single level with, with the urgency side of things. I, I have no dispute that we are not moving fast enough. We need to move faster. I'm not sure what you gain from a 2025 target that you don't get with a 2035 or a 2040 target. I think those are more technically realistic. I still think you get, would get the political push with activists on the street and all the other trends that we've talked about. And I think you diffuse the criticism that you are going to get from the government and obviously the headbangers, but then also the more reasonable people in government who will go, that just can't be done. 
and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm 99% sure it cannot be done that quickly. It's six years away. The idea of full decarbonisation of our economy, you cannot do that without such a level of compulsion and disruption that you would not take people with you and you would be kicked out of government immediately thereafter when you start seizing cars and stripping boilers out and everything else that would be required for deep decarbonisation of that level. Over the longer period, you start to bring in the opportunities for those clean tech costs, those technologies we haven't even invented yet, all these other things that could could start to deliver that deep decarbonisation, that radical change that we need to see. I do think 2050 is too late. I know the Lib Dems want 2045. That seems more reasonable and more in line with the science for me. Um, and the counter to that is, but that doesn't give us the urgency. And I, I think there's an element of framing here um, that we haven't got the urgency that we require. Everyone goes, oh, it's too far away. 2050 is too far away. I, I think it's, I've, not many people have heard me speak, but whenever I speak, I sort of point out it's no time at all. I'm not a young man. I will have only just retired in 2050. People said, like, oh, it's easier for Theresa May to sign off on this. She'll be dead when 2050 comes around. <laughs> and I looked up how old she was, and uh, my, my grandmother will tell you, she's, my grandmother's as old as the Queen, as she'll tell you over and over again. She's, she's 91, 90, 90, 90, just turned 92. So if Theresa May lives to be as old as my grandmother, 92, which is not in any ways inconceivable currently, she will be around to see whether we hit the target that she put in law for 2050. Um, the other one that I like is, is if Justin Bieber tours for as long as Bob Dylan, <laughs> he will finish touring in a zero-carbon world. A world globally. That ha that's, so it's a single career span activity that needs to be lived. It's that fast. And I think that kind of thing of like, oh, it's, it's so far hence. I mean, as Ed pointed out, the next parliament has five years. Yeah. That is, what, at nearly eight, nine, ten percent of the target? Every four months that passes, I work this out, every four months that passes is one percent of the available time to build a net zero emission economy in this country. So between the government passing that law and now, when they've done bugger all, one percent has just gone, ticked off, and it never comes back. It's gone. So... I, I, I just think you can create that emergency if you, if you frame it right. And, and on that point of what does an emergency look like, I mean, an, I, I wrote a piece with just a long list of things that you should do immediately, things that are uncontroversial, that need doing. I mean, borrow to invest, borrow to, borrow to invest, for God's sake. I mean, the rates are through the floor. You can easily argue that this money that you're spending is going to the beneficial of future generations. My parents in the 90s never once complained, oh, do you know what, our taxes are going to pay for our war debt. That's, but that's what it will be like. You know, it will be, it will be t our taxes in 2050 paying for this massive infrastructure change that happened there. But we were paying off our war debt right into the 90s. Um, and the, but the one big thing I always say, if, you, if, it's an, if it's an emergency, there should be COBRA-level meetings Definitely. with every single Definitely. top, top, top minister, at least quarterly, probably monthly. Definitely. And it should be happening over and over again. So Chris Grayling couldn't sit there for three years and do nothing on electric vehicles because he should have been hauled in every single month and go, how many, how many installed? How many charge points installed? Which manufacturer have we got building a factory today? Dun, 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 dun. So if it was really a priority, just that simple governance measure could shift thinking politically. Wonderful. Good. So... I'd like to see a show of hands, please. I'm going to take several questions at a time to get as many people in as possible. Uh, why don't we start right here, uh, the second row, and then I'll work my way up and I'll come over to you as well. 
Um, thank you, and thanks to all of you. Um, so, it would be nice if you could say who you are, what yeah, you're doing, sure. whether you're at So Tennessee. I work in sustainability consulting. Um, I've also done a master's and an undergraduate in climate science. Um, so really passionately believe in the need for urgent change. Um, I also agree with James, though, that we can't apply a broad brush to all businesses. Um, and I think businesses have played a big role in the carbon transition um, and have also, you know, we've got this new movement of kind of B Corps who have established themselves with a really strong social environmental purpose. Um, and I just wanted to get your view on this, Fahana, because it's the one, uh, I guess, the sort of one sort of doubt I have around XR is how are they going to engage these kind of businesses who really passionately believe in, in the transition as well? Um, and some of them feel quite alienated, I think, by the movement and really want to play a role. Um, and the context to this was the letter that they put um, in support of XR at the end of the April movement, which I know uh, got some resistance. So I'm just really curious to see, because I think they can play a really positive role in deepening the movement to... Um, Ed's point. Great. Next row, please. Thanks. Uh, thanks, everyone, to the panel. That was really interesting. Um, I'm Sam. I study uh, politics and communication here at LSE. And part of my studies is a focus on the impact of polarization, uh, which I think is relevant here. So I think the last few years has shown us all that uh, people have a, a massive capacity to deny facts and reality um, when they conflict with their ideological uh, and identity uh, um, commitments. Um, I take Ed's point that there is a consensus in this country that climate change is something that needs to be addressed. Um, however, in the last few months and weeks, we've seen prominent figures, media figures on the right attacking a 16-year-old girl. Um, a few years ago in, in the United States, there was a practice called rolling coal, where people would, would adapt their vehicles so that it would spray, deliberately spray out huge amounts of extra pollution and smoke so they could like, cover people on the street with it and video it and put it on social media. Obviously, that's an epidemic of people being arseholes, but it's, 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 but it's also an expression of identity uh, in opposition to the kind of issues that we've been describing today. So my question for the panel is, are you concerned what's going to happen if addressing climate change becomes embroiled in the culture war? Or are you, are you perhaps hopeful that it does, because given the generational component that... Uh, climate change and addressing it will become a central expression for the most dominant cohort in uh, electorally speaking the next few years thanks okay two rows further yep in the blue shirt thank you Hi, I'm, I'm studying for a Master's of Public Administration at the LSE. Um, so we've talked a lot about kind of drastic change that's needed across the board. It has to be a whole shift kind of from every area of society. Um, and that's obviously, I guess, for everyone in this room, we're all here because we've accepted it's an issue that we want action on. But for your average kind of voter, that is a very, very scary idea. Kind of however way you spin it, drastic change for everyone is very, very daunting. So my question is, particularly leading into an election, how do you sell to that average voter what their world is going to look like under that change? Kind of how do you make it a um, kind of a thing that they can actually see and envision for them and their children? And how do you convey that across other than just this is an emergency, we have to act? Yeah, good. All right. Um, okay, let's... Gentlemen, there in the red shirt, and then I'll close this round. We'll we'll take another one. Uh, yeah, question for Fahano. Uh, what would she say to James when he talks about power being so diffuse that you can't make change fast, and there's so much inequality in the world, and the the impact of climate change is um, vastly affecting the third world more than the first world? Good. Thank you very much. Good questions. We've got a good start here. Um, who would like to get started? There was a question about uh, XR's engagement with business to start with. 
Fana, do you want to take that up? Yeah, so, so XR is a movement, okay, and it's grown exponentially from sort of November to April to now. So, so there is a vast array of, of opinions and views, in particular with issues like how you, how you engage with business. And that early letter was uh, uh, one set of people who came up with that idea without really consulting very much of the membership and the core groups that were then operating, um, which gives me uh, the opportunity to, to, to say something positive about the XR culture, which is self-organizing and very, very empowering. And that's why you're seeing this huge diversity of actions in the UK in particular, but all around the world, and self-organizing by groups of people coming in and doing that. And the downside is occasionally things come up which you know no one really sees what, what they will be like. The, the, the question though is how do, how do progressive, progressive um, uh, movements like XR who want dramatic change, that's what I mean by progressive movements, uh, is who want dramatic change, um, that are centered essentially on justice and values that climate justice is very much a, a feature of, of that. How do they engage with business? And I think the most important thing that we could do right now is to stop doing the bad stuff, actually. There's an immediate moratorium, and that is what governments could commit to, to cancelling the bad projects, to fulfilling commitments such as getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies, for example, to, to stopping the destruction of nature. You know, the UK has the least amount of forests in any country in Europe, for example. So we could do things about that that are pretty sort of simple. And the businesses that are engaging in that need to understand that and to stop doing the bad stuff. And then I think that leaves space for the creation of a kinder, more regenerative kind of nature to, to become. I think B, Corp, B Corps and other types of purpose-driven value add you know uh, and the secular economy and all those concepts are really really important and those will be probably what our new economy will really sort of look like in the future um, just I think the question on, on, on engaging people uh, voters um, and the culture wars um, yeah I think I think um, there has been an attempt to pit you know, those who are demanding climate justice as the great unwashed, as anarchist hippies, as, you know, part of the left, lefty spectrum, um, or just unhinged or not understanding. Um, and I think that that attempt has come from those who are no longer able to deal with the, the science and the accept that there are uh, changes that could be made if they overcame their ideological uh, stance, for example, on state intervention in markets or investment, public investment. So I think that's where the right has a huge problem because essentially the rollback of the state, which has been the project for the last 20 years, cannot get come to come to grips with the fact that you have to intervene, that there is market failure, that it is causing you know, the worst impacts to, to happen on the poorest people in this society as well as in other countries, and then that can be rectified by public policy and government intervention. And I think the answer to that is a very strong uh, case for making sure that the benefits of action are really translated and people understand them. So I was uh, just in closing, you know, there's a big movement, again, largely um, catalyzed by XR, it's not an XR thing, 
of thousands of councils all around the world, local authorities declaring a climate and ecological emergency. My council, Camden Council, has declared a climate and ecological emergency and has now had the first Citizens' Assembly, by the way, which reported and the full council met on the 7th of October on Monday and has adopted a whole set of targets, including a, a commitment to try and get to as many of those by 2030 as possible, given the constraints on resources that they have. So I think explaining in that case locally and from local politicians that climate action means cleaner uh, uh, streets, it means less pollution, less asthma, it means uh, uh, warmer houses, cheaper fuels, it means uh, rewilding of areas, it means less congestions. All of those are benefits that people have not had explained to them. They've just had a lot of misinformation about how costly the whole thing is going to be. And we haven't done such a good job of selling essentially those benefits to people and that's what I think uh, has got to uh, happen in the next uh, few years and all par political parties are basically going to have to step up and take this action so however they sell it to their particular like, a bit of the base that, that that's what I think needs to happen thank you let, let me briefly answer uh, questions two and three um, I would say sort of consensus where possible but conflict where necessary <laughs> In other words, we can't just say, let's accept a lowest common denominator because we want to maintain the consensus if it's going to sort of, you know, forfeit the future generations. And I think, you know, I think in a way we've got to that stage. I think we should do everything we can. There is a consensus about the need to tackle the problem. The net zero thing passed without opposition. But I think we've got to now push forward with what's necessary. And, you know, it may produce conflict. But, I mean, you know, the setting up the NHS was done on the basis of conflict, but now it's accepted across both major political parties. So I think, in a way, we may have to have some conflict to get to where we need to uh, go. And then that sort of relates to the uh, really good question about what do we say to the voters. I'm chairing a, a climate change commission in Doncaster uh, to think about the, some of these um, issues. I, do, I, I said it in the opening, but I think it's really, really important. You know, this is about, this isn't just about disaster avoidance. It can't just be, we will not get enough people on side unless we make this about jobs and air quality and green spaces and social justice. And by the way, that is about how we pay for these things because it can't just all be loaded onto energy bills because that does hit, tend to hit the poorest harder than, than most. And you know, every, every policy should go through that social justice lens. So, you know, how do you tax aviation? Well, one proposal that's been put forward is a frequent flyer tax. Now, you know, because you can see that that has got, now it may not be the right thing, but it's got a social justice element. So, so I think it, I actually think this is possible. And just last thing, just quickly, in Norway, um, again, James will correct me if I'm wrong, 60% or 50 to 60% of vehicles, 50 to 60% of vehicles that are sold are electric cars, right? In Britain, it's 3%. Now, we love the Norwegians. If there are any Norwegians in the room, we love you. But it's not just, it's not just because Norwegians are lovely people, right? It's because the incentives are very significant to buy an electric car. And I think that's the, the other element of this is system change makes possible individual change. You can't just say to people, particularly people who are on low incomes, right, you've got to go green, buy an electric car, unless you make it possible for people to do that. And I think we've got this individual change thing slightly, we haven't quite got the argument right about, about how the two things go together. Um, <clears throat> I'll just come very quickly on the polarisation 
question. I really, really worry about polarisation. I mean, you, talk, you asked like, whether it will get pulled into the culture war. It's in it. I mean, it's there. It, and, and, I, and I don't see a route out. And I, I, I have some you know, nightmares about how horrendously things could escalate. I, I, I mean, one of the things that struck me when Extinction Rebellion first came through is just the name and the logo and everything about it. It struck me as, as sort of, like, A, inevitable, because if you accept the science a proportion of society was always going to respond in this way and all power to them. But it, it just sort of was so reminiscent to me of the Margaret Atwood books about Oryx and Craig, that, that trilogy, where she sort of just throws in these little lines about things that happened before the fall. And then I think in there there's like a, a, a religious sect that worships oil. And then obviously, and then the, the, the gardeners who look after the earth. And you just thought, I mean, it, it feels so prescient because you feel like you're kind of in that place. And, and the, with the culture war, and it's exactly the same with Brexit, you, you find yourself in this awful position of, if you ignore it, you're letting something that is, in some cases, morally unconscionable pass. And then does that give it more power? But if you fight it, you're giving them what they want. So I, I have no answer to that solution, I, to that question, and I really do worry about it from this perspective. I think the, probably the only thing you can do is, is fight it and, and try and marginalise it as much as possible so that you do present this, as has been, everyone's touched upon, as the mainstream attractive option, the option that is not... I mean, you get so... I mean, I, I argue with... Again, we should never go on Twitter, but I argue with sort of various right-wing commentators on Twitter the whole time who were saying, you know, this is going to cost working-class people millions. It's like, well, it's not now. If we had onshore wind farms, it would bring their energy exactly. bills down. So that's just exactly. rubbish. It's just, a, it's just wrong. It's, and it's demonstrably wrong. So stop peddling these lies. And I, I, think, and I think the most, the most worrying people in this... It, it's, the, it's the old Martin Luther King quote about the moderates being the most dangerous. The most, the most worrying people in this debate are those who accept that we need climate action and yet still condemn what XR and the climate strikers and green businesses are doing. And then you ask them, okay, that's fine, you can disagree. What's your alternative plan? And they don't have one. And I'm like, well, then you don't seriously think climate change is a problem, because if you haven't got a serious thought-out answer to that, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a whole manifesto, but you've got to sort of have a credible response. And I don't think we pin them nearly enough on that in just saying hang on, okay, fine, you can disagree with the tactics of XR. How are you going to do it? Because if you're not disputing the science, we need to do it. How are you going to do it? And they're not pushed on that nearly enough. And Boris Johnson is the prime example of that because he's got a lot of credit for going, I agree in net zero, I definitely want net zero, the power of technology will get us through. How? His dad was at uh, Trafalgar Square today at the XR demo, so maybe he'll... Maybe, maybe he'll help. Maybe he'll tell <laughs> maybe he'll help. But, you. Know, there's, there's no plan. There's no plan, credible plan, and they need a plan. Anyway. All right, good. I'd like to come over here. The lady in front there, second row. Yes, please. Hi, I'm a student. My name's Alma. I'm a student here at the LSE in history, and I think it's interesting that you spoke about activism with reference to apartheid and the women's movement but you also didn't mention that it took decades for those things to actually be resolved and also similarly in terms of XR these are people who are able to talk to the police and able to not face threats and at the end of it the bulk of the labor is going to be held by marginalized people and working class people so for people who fall into these communities how can they actually have solutions that don't necessarily rest on systems that oppress them. 
Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Let's go up a little bit. There are lots of people from, oh, in the middle. Hello, um, my name's Harriet. I'm in the IPE uh, master's course. Um, thank you very much for your discussions today. Uh, they've been heartening. Um, I have a question for all of you. Um, I'm actually part of the LSC uh, Climate Emergency Collective, and I would like to ask you, why do you think LSC has not yet declared a climate emergency? Why do you think we don't have the net zero by 2030 target? We're currently at 2050. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Now, <laughs> it's perhaps a bit unfair to ask our invited speakers to answer that question on behalf of the LSE, but perhaps you have a view on that uh, and the role of universities in the moment. We'll come back to that in a moment. But thank you for that. Yes, and, and next row. Lovely. Uh, hi. Um, I'm about to go into the civil service, so this is my only chance to ask this. Um, obviously, Brexit's bad, but is there any opportunity in having left the EU to do this better from a public policy point of view? I assume no, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah, I can say something on that. Okay, let's take one more. Can you go all the way to the right? There's a very eager question coming. Um, hi, I am um, going to take the liberty of making a comment. I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> very it's, quickly. It's, it's Q&A. Yes, uh, so but I want to, I want to comment, echo please. the other speaker here, and I want to take this opportunity to talk about LSE very briefly. I started studying here 10 years ago, climate change policy. Most of what I learned was about climate negotiations, about carbon trading, about carbon taxation. Ten years, when I left, I was already depressed about climate change. Ten years later, none of those things have worked. So can the LSE please introduce social movements, heterodox economics into its curriculum and give students here a real hope for change and you know, look at itself in the mirror. Thank you. All right. Good, good thing we've got our pro-director for research uh, in the second row sitting there, Simon. Um, uh, <laughs> all right, he's taking notes. Good. Um, can, we, can we get on with that? These are very powerful uh, interventions, and I think let's get a few quick responses to that. James, do you want to start? Um, yes. On, I mean, on two of those very quickly. I, on declaring an emergency, um, your point on teaching heterodox economics is absolutely critical. That really needs to be happening not just here but everywhere because we, the whole system is going to change over the next 20 or 30 years. It's either going to change by massive climatic disruption and technological disruption or it's going to change through an industrial revolution and the economic models that we have currently are baked in with massive market failures as Lord Stern has as, as documented very effectively within these four walls that, you know, six or seven interlocking market failures. So teaching Heterodox economics, I think, really does have to be a big part of the programme. Why I, I can't speak for LSE at all, obviously, but why some businesses and organisations have been wary of declaring climate emergency is, is the sense of the term just not being nearly well-defined enough. And unless you sort of have a sense of... It's easy to, to say it's a climate emergency. Unless you have an actual plan that is commensurate with that emergency, it does look like greenwash, and you will very quickly get accused of greenwash. So I don't know whether that's the case of LSE, but certainly for a lot of organisations, there's a wariness of that term 
because of precisely that lack of follow-up that comes from it. Um, on your question about Brexit, sir, there, there, is, a green, there is a green Brexit um, <laughs> silver lining. <laughs> I mean, net... I'm firmly of the view that as a net impact, it is probably disastrous for this uh, agenda, not least because you need an economy to be, have the capital to invest and the confidence to invest to make a technological transition. <laughs> However, there is one tiny thing on the sidelines of that, and that is that it gets you out of the common agricultural policy. And, it get, and there is a, a credible plan being worked in DEFRA that I really could think could be very transformational of saying that we shift the subsidies that we currently hand over to landowners just for owning land and say we are only going to give you that money if you start to deliver environmental services that the community as a whole and society as a whole needs. And I think across left and right there is broad support, obviously the detail needs finalised, but there is broad support for that concept. And even if we ended up staying in the EU, hopefully that work would be used to try and push the EU for uh, agricultural subsidy scheme that is much more aligned with uh, the climate progress that we need to make. Uh, that's the one silver lining I have. Everything else is shocking. I, uh, <laughs> I, I should perhaps quickly add the LSE has adopted the government's uh, decarbonisation net zero target of 2050, so it's aligned itself with the government on that and it has set up a working group that is looking at ways to accelerate that. The LSE. Um, so this is part of that. I understand from the investment committee that uh, most of the investment is now uh, out of the carbon sector, but I think they're looking at the remaining uh, fractional investment that's still there. But I, I'm not in an authoritative sure. position to, to make the uh, authoritative statement on that. Uh, I think we, this is the time when we need to break the rules here and have um, an official statement. Simon. <laughs> I'm uh, Simon Hicks. I'm a uh, pro-director for research, but also the Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science. Uh, teach uh, in this room every Thursday to about 400 first-year undergrads in charge of political science. Um, we just adopted yesterday at the uh, uh, school management committee um, to set up the sustainability advisory group, um, which will be chaired by Nick Stern, to provide us with... Um, we were reluctant to set up a group that just sits there and does nothing, so we're actually going to set up a timetable, and we want to deliver on the advice from the group in the next 18 months to start with, and the group's going to be reviewing what we're doing on teaching and research and on investment. Robert's right, we've adopted the government's policy on um, zero emissions by 2050, but we want to accelerate what we're doing across teaching, research, and investment. So that's why we set up that group yesterday. Okay. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Simon. You've heard it. I'll just be very brief. Oh, the economics curriculum, tot I'm totally uh, into this. Uh, the heterodox economics thing, I think, is incredibly uh, important. A friend of mine, Professor Wendy Carlin at UCL, has been a big part of this core um, curriculum, which is now being taught at different places around the world, which precisely aims uh, to do that. Just on the Brexit point, I think um, James has found a... a a sort of small silver lining. Um, the, the, uh, the thing that worries me, which hasn't got much attention, is that we negotiate in Europe as part of the European bubble, as it's called, about 10% of global emissions, I think I'm right in saying. And we have been, even including under this government, we've been a positive force for um, more action rather than less. And... That, you know, there is this sort of question, if we, if we leave, as well as all the other questions about what happens if we leave, where are we going to be? Because if we are 
out of this European bubble and European burden sharing, it will not only mean we've got less influence, it will make Europe less green and less likely to push forward. And then just in that context, because I think, again, it's because of Brexit, it's receiving no attention at all, we are hosting an incredibly important international meeting, Britain, uh, at the end of next year, COP26, Conference of the Parties. That is Paris five years on. Each country is supposed to agree to increase its targets, improve its targets, so that instead of the three point something degrees of warming that we're going to get on the basis of the Paris targets, uh, individual country targets, we do a lot better and get towards one and a half or, or, or worse, two degrees. This, in normal circumstances, Fahana knows much more about this than me, but I saw a bit of it at Copenhagen, which didn't go so well. Uh, this, is, this, this would require every ounce of diplomatic muscle. You'd have to strain every sinew, use every resource of government to make this a success. At the moment, they've got Claire Perry, who's, gonna be the, who's not going to be an MP, as I understand it, who's going to be the president of this. I mean, you know, they've got to raise their game on this, because it is, whoever is in government, this is incredibly important and consequential for the world. It's incredibly difficult circumstances, because the, Trump, the 2020 US election will have just happened. We don't know who's going to be there. So it's just an absolutely crucial, crucial moment. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy that LSE are taking a actions. And actually, the question that is coming more and more often is, am I, am I good enough to declare? You know, this is coming up in uh, different movements. Culture declares, in musicians declare, lawyers declare. And I think there's a profound qu question about, about that question. Is it, what, what is it that we're waiting for? Are we going to declare once we've got our house in order? Or do we declare, is, declare, is the act of declaring the intention that we're ready to go on that journey? And I'm very happy that you know you're, you're going on that journey and I hope that it will lead to all of the things, including divestment, including reducing your carbon footprint, including looking at all of the curriculum, including looking at how uh, students who are here, staff who are here, can really engage with the, the journeys that we all need to go on. And I, and I feel that the act of declaration is really around that, and that's what um, they signify. They're a hook for a journey to be had, not... not uh, you know that you have to already have ticked all these boxes. So I wanted to say that because actually one of the most powerful things and a lot of what I'm working on is getting uh, different sectors, different professions, different geographies to declare a climate and ecological emergency with the intent of actually examining what the people need to do in their lives. On the question about um, how can different communities, especially communities of colour, especially black people, especially people who are poor, engage with uh, Extinction Rebellion, the types of protests that we've seen, and what is their place really in, in forging a new world? That's how I see it. And their place is, you know, central and forefront um, and absolutely fully there. Because actually what we're doing when we're changing our system is recognizing huge uh, legacies of inequality, of injustice, some from colonialism, some from imperialism, some from uh, economic inequality, and not everyone is treated the same way by the system. So uh, just now, you know, when I was arrested in April, you know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, I'm a, I don't do criminal law, but I'm familiar enough and I'm articulate enough and I was treated well enough 
by the system, but at the same time that I was being checked in uh, to the police station, I witnessed uh, 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 an incident of racism where a, a black gentleman was called the N-word and was complaining to the police officers that he wanted that incident logged. This was in front of my eyes, right there, right there, there and then. You know, it showed that our institutions of justice, the way in which the police work, the way in which uh, our prison systems work, are racialized and they do disproportionately impact on communities of color, including black people, especially black men, much more. And I think one thing that's ironic and is coming out is XR has been hugely educated in the last few days um, by the fact that the police do random you know, stop and search and suddenly uh, 200,000 people have worked out how arbitrary and ridiculous these powers are and how historically they've been, they've been used. So I, I feel like there's a, a complicated set of things um, going on within XR. It's um, like many other parts of the sort of environment movement, uh, incredibly white. In fact, the environment movement as a whole is is as white as the almost you know comes second next to British farming as the, the, <laughs> the, the, the whitest sector. So so that's not a great track record. But we have to take much more active steps doing that and what I'm really pleased to report is that part of the rebellion of the sites that are being occupied there's a site called the Global Justice Block which is in St. James's Park and it's inviting lots of different movements to come and talk about inclusion and how we can co-create a better world so it's meant to be a safer space nothing to do with the rest to invite everyone in well. okay don't worry we can carry on um, it's the word that counts oh good Okay, thank you. I want to go up there. There were a few hands that, that early on that I ignored. Yes, please. Well, hi. My name is Mateus. I'm doing master's in political sociology here. I'm from Brazil. I'm not going to waste time talking about the living hell that we're living about this topic there. But I would like to ask two questions. The first is we know, like, in the overall numbers, the participation of Europe in carbon printings is small and especially like China, Brazil, they have a biggest responsibility on that. So how, but at the same time, they're also sovereign. So how do we work on that? Like how do we solve this problem? How do we push other countries to change uh, without um, attacking their sovereign on their resources? And my second question is what, to do with business that are really hard to change, like agribusiness, you know, it's like the core of the business is really anti-ecological. So is it really possible to have like a green um, agribusiness? Is it really possible to convince them not to destroy the whole Amazonia? Is what we're just playing, you know, with that? Great, good questions. Uh, then who was next? Yeah, then. Just down there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Julian. I study psychology of economic life here at the LSE. Um, could you, and I guess particularly Ed, but, but all three of you, talk a little bit more about XR's third demand of the Citizens' Assembly, uh, whether you think that's a, a realistic demand, something that will happen, something that should happen, and maybe in a broader perspective, whether you know the silver lining could also be to sort of use this challenge to make some... Uh, set some political precedent and reform the system in some way that could also help us deal with future challenges. Great, thank you. There's a question there, the lady in the third row. 
Hello, my name is Sekshi Rai. Um, I'm a current student at LSE as well. And um, one thing, going off of the agribusiness aspect of the question, I have a question for you, Farana, in terms of, I think one of the strengths of Greta Thunberg as an activist is that she is so coherent with every, every, life every lifestyle practice that she has, that she's a vegan, she doesn't take flights. Is that something that, as XR, you would probably want to push forward? You you would want to like turn away from the meat industry. You want people to not be shopping in fast fashion because that's something, sometimes something that I feel like gets taken away from the debates around climate activism. I don't know if people, like the people on the activism side, are actually being accountable toward themselves, even if they're putting a statement forward. Thank you. Okay, um, there's still lots more hands. This um, we'll have to see. Can we take a quick round and then I can take two more questions at the end? Thank you. So just. Just on the, on the third demand, and actually it's related to your question, like is XR pro-vegan or is it anti-flights? Um, so, so again, XR is a movement um, and you know, actions are going on as we speak. One is by Animal Rebellion, which is an offshoot of XR, which have occu has occupied Smithfields. Uh, XR Argentina, uh, I think last night, uh, did an action against Monsanto and Bayer. And so actually different parts of XR are choosing their actions and deciding what to do. Uh, and that's actually right for a movement that I, I support that decentralized, you know, it's, it's, your, it's your choice to decide what to do. As a whole, I think the, the most of the people I'm in touch with, and that's now a tiny minority because most of it is like 200,000 people all over the world and on Facebook, are very uh, principled. Uh, but by, all, by no means are they all vegans, and by all means they all you know, do flights and do other things, and so are kind of non-prescriptive in that, in that sense. So, and I think it ties in with the third demand, which is essentially for those of you who may not know, it's to, to set up a citizens' assembly to, to decide, to make decisions on, on, on the ecological and, and justice aspects of the transition that we all need to take. And there's lots and lots of you know, political design uh, dilemmas and questions around how that would work. But essentially, the, the, the main thrust of it is that solutions have to be decided by people and that you know our political systems cannot run ahead and must have the legitimacy of people directly impacted and they must have a voice and I hadn't really heard about the experience with citizens assemblies actually uh, until la la last year when I looked up sortition and the sortition foundation and the experiences with all of these different mechanisms and they are taking place all over the world and in general the experience with them is very robust and is very credible. Once you involve people, they tend to deliberate and make very good decisions. I think the issue for me personally, uh, as a sort of political animal, is probably for climate change, you would need to have a sort of ongoing process. Mm -hmm. No, it's not like a one-off question. It's like an ongoing process. And also you would have to have uh, a voice and a space for people who are not citizens of that country um, so that's actually the fourth demand which is being discussed in the global justice that I talked about, which is how can a citizen assembly process, which is national, nationally based, 
you know, really take into account the ecological justice arguments from uh, and representation of, of, of many other kinds of constituencies. But I think it's an, a, an exciting experiment, and I think um, the, the experience with Camden Council, which was the first council to actually go ahead and have a good enough, you know, let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Involve has involved, which is an organisation that uh, evaluates and supports uh, deliberative uh, uh, processes, including sortition-based assemblies. Has done an evaluation and supported that process. So I think we're learning lots from it, um, uh, and I th and I hope that that's going to feed into every aspect of society. And you know, people may choose then to give up meat altogether. Um, so in my household, we have had this argument for a while, but actually our 12-year-old son who loves chicken nuggets and hamburgers has said, I'd like to be a vegetarian. Um, and so many people are making that choice, and that's the single biggest thing apart from flying that you know, individually we can do. And in this country and in many countries, that movement has taken, taken off massively. So it can send a huge signal as well. Great. Sorry, um, that took a bit long. Ed, Parliament's not working really at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Citizen Assembly, does that sound appealing? I'm massively in favour of sortition, uh, like Fahana. I think it's really uh, important. I think it's worked very well in Ireland. Um, I think they've actually done it also on, on the climate emergency. Um, I think there's sort of two levels to this. I think this, because realistically the sortition thing, which is a sort of random group of people, it's, it tends to be small numbers of people. I think that is one level of engagement, but you've also got to engage the more general public who are not necessarily going to be chosen for the um, Citizens' Assembly. But I think yes is the answer. Um, just on the first question, China and Brazil and all that, I think, look, China is doing a lot. It doesn't mean to say that everything they're doing is, is right. Uh, I think the Belt and Road and the way they are starting to export their emissions in a way that the West has been doing for a long time is quite uh, problematic and worrying. But we have no chance of persuading them unless we act ourselves, even though we're 1% of emissions. Unless we can show we're acting, you're trying to say to others, please kind of do your bit, when we are the fifth biggest uh, country in the world in terms of historical emissions, I think it's hopeless. So we've got to get our ass in order and act. I think the other thing just to say in this institution though, I think we have to start thinking about trade policy and we have to start thinking about trade agreements. You can't, we can't I, in the world we're trying to get to, we can't just import goods which are produced with high carbon with no tariffs and no taxes as if they were produced with low carbon. I mean, this is going to have to change. And in a way, there's been a sort of mantra around free trade and we can't interfere and we can't have tariffs and all that. But I'm afraid this problem is too serious for us to just operate on the old rules. So, I mean, yes, they're sovereign countries. We have to respect their sovereignty. But we've got to think about trade policy in this, it seems to me, uh, very seriously uh, in this context. Last thing I'll just say very quickly, I, Greta Thunberg is an incredibly admirable person. I hope she wins the Nobel Peace Prize uh, on Friday. I think I had an argument with a um, young person in my constituency about whether she was going to be allowed to eat beef anymore uh, on Tuesday, so it's kind of in my mind. I, I think we have to be quite careful on this individual action thing. Individual action really matters, and particularly if people who are high profile, they should do everything they can. But I think, I, you know, I think partly because sometimes it's the last step people are going to take in terms of you know, the, the hardest, the, the last mile, if you like, the hardest, the hardest bit. 
And secondly, of what I said earlier about system change making possible individual change. People are living in the world as it is. We've got to change the world as it is. And we've got to, in the end, it's the big decisions that government makes which will, which will change this and make possible people to, to change as well. Just very quickly on the, the, the point on trade and agribusiness. Um, firstly, on trade, I mean, one of the many tragedies of Brexit is just giving up leverage. And, and you know, Emmanuel Macron has said, you're, we're not going to sign trade deals unless yeah. you're in the Paris Agreement. And whereas we're going, oh, please, let's have a trade deal yeah. quick. We need the dirtiest, quickest one we can get. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, there, there is leverage that diplomatic entities can apply to say, you know, we're not going to tell you what to do, but these are the international rules. You've signed up to the Paris Agreement. If you're not honouring it, you're not getting a trade deal. You're not getting the economic benefits that flow from that. Agribusiness um, is horrendously difficult to decarbonise. It's one of the big difficult areas. Um, to try and, again, I was told off being pessimistic, but, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will and all that, and trying to look for um, a, a bright side on that. Agriculture is a sector that hasn't had a technological revolution in quite a long time. And there is some fascinating stuff going on. We ran a story last week about a, a, a project that's going to make one in every ten tomatoes in Britain in two giant greenhouses in East Anglia that is going to be fuelled by uh, um, waste heat from sewage plants, um, which sounds lovely, but you know it's going to work, and that will that will produce food. And, and you look at the you look at the, um, the sort of beyond meat burgers that are coming. I mean, there is there's serious investor concern. Yeah, that we've talked about stranded assets in fossil fuels. You're going to have stranded assets in livestock. So those farmers who are levelling areas to create pasture for beef could find there's no market for that beef. And there's people in the meat industry, and there's a wonderful memo that leaked from a meat lobbyist um, in the US who tried the Impossible Burger and then briefed these various farmers and ranchers across the US and just went, guys, we're screwed. (laughs) (laughs) This is over. And, you know, he said you could not tell the difference. And you kind of think if you, you, know, if you get to that level, then that is an area where maybe the technology will save us. Um, That's good. Pitch might deliver. All right. I'm afraid we're out of time. But um, I think we've had not just a stimulating and wide-ranging discussion, we've also had a very inspiring evening. And could you please join me in thanking our panellists for making our time available? <laughs>